0: Just a brief review of where we've been in this series on the Ten Commandments, some foundational principles that I, I want to call to your attention. Number one, the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, reflect God's own character. They reflect God's own moral character. These are not merely arbitrary rules that God made up. Uh, these, they, they weren't given as a, as a test. No, they were given as a reflection of His own character so that we might know who He is and, and who He is in His own being. And secondly, the, the law was given as a gift of love, uh, the point of the children's sermon. The, the Ten Commandments were given so that humanity might flourish in liberty and in peace and in prosperity. The problem arises with our own sinful nature and that we are by nature fallen in Adam. We are lawbreakers. And so the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. But here again, the law leads us to Jesus Christ, the Savior who perfectly obeyed God and shows us the way and grants us the grace by the power of the Spirit, so that more and more, as we are more transformed into His likeness by the Spirit, we might live more faithfully and more truly walk in His ways and keep His commandments. So those are just some foundational principles I want to keep before us um, as we continue our way through the Ten Commandments. Two weeks ago, we got started with the first commandment, uh, we're going to do a little bit of uh, building on that related to the first commandment and then transition into the second commandment, and Lord willing, uh, next Sunday we'll have a follow-up, another sermon on the second commandment. But let us ask the Lord to bless the reading of His holy word, which He spoke on Mount Sinai. Uh, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, and in your loving kindness, your goodness, your mercy, you speak your word to us so that we might know you and know the life to which you have called us. We ask in Jesus' name for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things in your law, to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us read in unison. If you would please take your Pew Bible. And that is found on page 61, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep him holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the Sabbath day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Two weeks ago, when I preached on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, before my face in my presence, I did not plan to return to it for a part two. But then, week before last, I attended our denomination's general assembly in which I heard Andrew Brunson speak about his two-year imprisonment in Turkey. And as he was speaking, I thought to myself, I've got to go back and dig deeper into the first commandment. For those of you who may not know, Andrew Brunson is a pastor in our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, who had served as a pastor of a congregation in Turkey for 23 years, together with his wife and children. In October of 2016, Andrew and his wife, Noreen, were arrested on charges, false charges, of terrorism and conspiracy against the Turkish government. And thankfully, after a brief period, Noreen was released. But Andrew remained in prison for two years, at times in solitary confinement, at times even without a Bible. The Turkish prosecutors were seeking a judgment of life or multiple life terms without parole, which meant that Andrew was threatened with the very real possibility of dying in prison. Praise be to God, Andrew was released last October and since then he has spent these past months recovering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. His story is powerful and profound. And as he spoke, I, I, I said to myself, I've got to go back and dig deeper into the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, before my face, in my presence. Now, Andrew never referred to the first commandment. But what he said just kept driving me back to it. His testimony really had nothing to do with the first commandment, per se. But to me, it seemed to have everything to do with the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me, before my face. How so? Well, Here was a man who was on the verge of losing everything dear to him in this world. His wife, his children, his congregation, his very life. Here was a man who stood before us with integrity and humility to tell us that at times he contemplated suicide. At times... He felt completely abandoned by God in total darkness. That he barely survived living on the edge of losing his mind and losing his faith. And I thought to myself, I'm not prepared for that. I'm not. Are you? But something like that isn't going to happen to me. I'm not exposed to that kind of danger. Well, I certainly hope not. I would never want anything like that to happen to you or to me or to anyone else. But y'all... Y'all, people that I love, you don't have to be locked in a Turkish prison for the bottom to drop out. It causes me to shudder to say it, but the fact of the matter is that you or I could lose everything and everyone we love in this world in the blink of an eye. And some of you here know what I'm talking about a lot more than I do. Any one of us could find ourselves on the verge of losing our minds and losing our faith if the bottom were to drop out. That's not a manipulative fear tactic. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I am the one who was stirred by Andrew Brunson. So I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself. It was a wake-up call for me. And maybe, maybe, maybe there are others here today who need to wake up from the spiritual slumber The stupor induced by worldly security, creaturely comforts, and trivial distractions. So how was it that Andrew's story drove me back to the first commandment? Like, what was that connection? (laughs) It was this. What would you have if you had nothing at all? What would you have if you were in solitary confinement in a foreign prison, facing life in prison without parole? Does your life, your inner being, your soul really have a real and firm foundation? Or is it just propped up? propped up by things all of which could disappear in a split second and which, when you take your last breath, aren't going to do you any good at all. It's a scary thought. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just preaching to myself. I'm just asking myself, what would I have if I had nothing at all? And the point of that question is to drive me deeper, more radically at the root of my inner being into a life grounded upon, rooted in, centered on, committed to the one and only true and living, everlasting God. A life sold out to God and owned by nothing else. A life dependent upon Him and nothing else. A life in which my happiness and sense of security and well-being come from the assurance that the one who rules over the world holds me in His almighty hand and He can do with me whatever He wants. And therefore, a life whose highest purpose and goal is to know and worship, serve, honor, trust, love, and obey, and enjoy the true and living God. A life which is about God and His glory and not my own. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, That's really the preface to the sermon. And if you're taking notes and you like an outline, point number one can simply be Andrew Brunson. Point number two is a reiteration of a point from the first sermon. The first commandment is absolute. There are no exceptions to it. It is an all or nothing command. It is a command of exclusivity. That is, the first commandment reveals that there is only one true and living God and that he has the absolute right and authority to set the terms of humanity's relationship with him. That's an important concept. He has the right and authority to set the terms of humanity's relationship with Him. He sets the terms, not we. And then point number three is the first commandment shatters our illusions and cures us of our delusions. So if you're taking notes, point number three can simply be wake up. Ask yourself the question, how seriously do you take the God who is revealed in the Bible? I'm not asking you whether you believe that there is a God or whether you believe that there is some kind of supreme being or higher power. I'm not asking that. I'm asking how seriously do you take the God, the living God, who has revealed Himself through His inspired Word in the Bible, indeed who speaks to you through the words of the Bible, and has decreed and declared His absolute exclusive claim upon your life. That means that He, the everlasting Holy One, must be the center of your life and mine, not an add-on, not an accessory on the periphery of your life. I'm preaching to myself, God help me. God, deliver me from the silly, silly, silly notions of God that have corrupted American Christianity. Silly notions such as, God can be whoever you want Him to be. And that's actually okay with Him. It's okay with God for you to think of Him, to conceive of Him, however you want to, whatever works for you, whatever makes you happy. Because after all, that's what God wants. He just just wants you to be happy according to your own definition of happiness. He's so nice. That's American religion. And it's silly. It's silly. And it's just the worship of another God who happens to be me. Or the silly notion, you know, that that God is just, He's here to help us. Because, you know, we all need a little help every now and then. So we run our own lives, we do what we want to do, and then God is there if and when we need Him. Thank you very much. It's a silly notion that God's main job is to help life go a little better for us, however we want to live our lives. So we ask God for a little help, we count our blessings, we hope for the best, and we carry on with our own personal agenda. God, deliver me from this silly notion which is nothing less than the worship of other gods, the dead idols of this world. And that gets us now to point number four, and we're beginning that transition into the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, I seriously doubt that any of you have recently carved for yourself an image of some earthly thing and bowed down to worship it. But that misses the point entirely. Idolatry is not simply a matter um, pertaining to other religions which do engage in idol worship, and there are those that do exist today all over the world and in America. But idolatry is deeply rooted in, it permeates our fallen, sin-corrupted human nature. John Calvin wrote that the fallen human mind is a, quote, perpetual factory of idols. In other words, we can and we do carve idols, so to speak, in our minds. That is, we we think of things as though they were God, as though they are our reason for living, and and therefore are worthy of our highest allegiance and deepest devotion and greatest sacrifice, our worship. And we put our trust in them because we think that these things will really make us happy and make our lives complete. And any time we take anything in this world, and it might be a really good thing, but anytime we take anything in this world and elevate it to the highest place in our lives as the one thing upon which our happiness depends, the one thing we cannot live without, the thing that most of us are that we most of all we want to live for so that it really and truly takes the place of God in our lives, and we have in fact carved an image, an idol, and we've bowed down to it, and we're serving it. Let me ask you this question. It's a good one. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? (laughs) What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? If you can identify that, you may very well have identified an idol in your life. Idolatry is at the very root of our fallen nature. It is what Adam's fall has done to us all. You can read Romans 1. It's the essence of our sinful nature and our rebellion against God. And although we may not bow down before a carved image, there are idols in this world which we are prone to worship. Human beings, having been created in the image of God, we are incurably religious. Yes, indeed we are incurably religious. And if we are not truly worshiping the living God, we will surely be worshiping a dead idol of some kind. And again, they may be very good things, they may be blessings of God, but they're not God. And they should not have the place of God in our lives. Good things such as a a happy marriage and and a happy family and perfect kids and good health and a rewarding occupation. These are blessings of God, but they're not God. And other things such as social standing and social acceptability and popularity and financial prosperity and personal or public power, control over others, physical fitness and beauty, luxury and leisure, the worldly obsession with being forever young, it's idolatry. We make the worldly success of our children an idol. Of course, You know, we love our children. We would, do, we would do anything to give them every opportunity and every advantage for worldly success in this world, including participation in every activity imaginable beginning at age four, without nearly the same amount of time and energy and commitment to raising them to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is idolatry. My goodness, today goes without saying. Today in our nation, sexual freedom, really sexual anarchy, sexual lawlessness is surely one of the most powerful idols of our culture. We have the idolatry of government, statism, trusting in human government to solve all of our problems and give us an unshakable security. That cuts both ways, liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican. There is science and technology, which in the right hands, used for the right purposes, have brought great blessing to humanity. But science and technology without any moral or ethical limits under the fear of God, just doing something because it can be done, human cloning... It's a horrible idolatry and a horrific evil. What about the works of our hands that give us our identity and our security, those idols of status and style? Is it really true that the cars we drive are extensions of ourselves, expressions of ourselves? I mean, look, just look at the advertising. <laughs> you don't think this culture is full of idols? Just, you know, I don't want you to watch TV, but, you know, if, if you, if, if you're gonna watch the, maybe the World Series on TV, just look at the advertising, okay? Now this has not, this has to do with the orientation of your heart. It, it doesn't have to do with the car you drive. It has to do with your heart. But do we find our self-worth, our identity in the houses we live in, the clothes we wear, the places we go on vacation? What would you have if you had nothing at all? You see, when we begin to believe that our lives have value because we have these things, then these things have become our idols. The question is not, what do we own? The question is, what owns us? To what or to whom do we bow down and serve, whether in the primitive sense or the very sophisticated sense? Idolatry is man's attempt to secure salvation by the work of his own hands. That's what it is. That gets us to point number five, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we cannot save ourselves by the works of our hands. And all the false gods of this world will fail us in the end, if not sooner. But the infinite, eternal, invisible God, the great I Am, who said you shall have no other gods before my face, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, is the same one. who for our sake and our salvation has come into this world in the visible, tangible flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1.15 says, listen, that He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. There it is. There it is. There's the living image. Not a dead idol. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or image of His nature. There He is. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The images that we we carve out of the lives of our world are nothing in comparison to him. The point is that the true image before whom we are to bow down and serve, the true image to whom alone we are to look and in whom we are to trust, the true image who alone gives value to our lives is not a dead idol, but the living image of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we all are idolaters, Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from all our idolatry. If we take seriously the first and second commandments, we know that our hearts are corrupted, our minds are darkened, and our wills are inclined toward idolatry, and we have failed to keep God's law. And the wages of sin is death. And so the law leads us to Jesus Christ. If you have ever broken the first or second commandment, as have I, you need a sinless Savior as a substitutionary sacrifice to reconcile you to the lawgiver, the living God. To heal the breach and save you from His righteous condemnation. If you've ever broken the first or second commandment, as have I, you need a sinless Savior, a substitutionary sacrifice, who will reconcile you to God. And that is who Jesus Christ is. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us in offering up Himself for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news for every one of us who will receive it. Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, offered Himself as the sacrifice to atone for your idolatry and mine, and He rose from the dead as Lord over all to set us free from the bondage of the idols in our lives. Wouldn't you really like to be set free from all that stuff Follow Him. Where is your hope? In a dead idol or the living Christ? Where is your happiness? In a dead idol or the living Christ? Where is your security? In a dead idol? The making of your own hands? Or in the living Christ who made everything? Where is your identity? In a dead idol or the living Christ who gave Himself up for you? He is the image of the invisible God. He calls us to Himself in faith. Accept His sacrifice on your behalf. Be done with dead idols. Offer to Him the worship of your heart and the allegiance of your soul. And have Him. Have Him. When you have nothing at all. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word of truth and your word of life and your word of grace, your word of salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us more deeply to repent of our sins. Help us more joyfully to embrace Jesus our Savior and more faithfully to follow Him. Walking in Your ways and keeping Your commandments by the power of Your Spirit to the glory of Your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one true church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world, as we say together, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and unmonished Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended, and